Welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's Fine Lecture Series Online Edition. I'm Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight uh, for our talk by Professor Kenneth J. Yin on his uh, recently published book, uh, well, Dungan Folk Tales and Legends, but his talk is uh, entitled The Sinophone Muslim Folkloric Tradition in Central Asia, and it was recently published by Peter Lang Publishing. Uh, Kenneth J. Yin teaches languages and linguistics at the Department of Education and Language Acquisition at LaGuardia Community College, CUNY. His main area of research interest is the literature and culture of Dungans of Central Asia. Uh, his research has been supported by the American Council of Learned Societies, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Humanities, among others. Uh, he was educated at Cornell and Georgetown Universities. And with that, please welcome Professor Yin. Thank you all for um, joining um, us on this um, beautiful Friday evening. Um, yeah, so um, the, the presentation today is titled, as Anthony said, the Sinophone Muslim Folklore Tradition in um, Central Asia and uh, Dungan and Dungan Folk Tales and Legends. And it's based on research reported in my new book, um, Dungan Folk Tales and Legends which was um, just published in um, August of 2021 by Peter Lang. So I would like to begin the presentation by providing some background first on the Dungans as an ethnic group and some basic information about the Dungan language before proceeding with a discussion of the Dungan folkloric tradition, which is um, um, contained in, in, in the book, new book. So uh, this um, slide here shows the distribution of the Hui people, who are um, the Sinophone Muslims, the Chinese-speaking Muslims in China, from whom the Dungans are descended. And um, here, yeah. So uh, the areas shaded in red on the map are the areas with sizable numbers of these Chinese-speaking Muslims here in the people. So the, the Hui um, are an ethno-religious group, predominantly composed of Chinese-speaking Muslims, numbering approximately 10 and a half million, according to the 2011 Chinese census figures. And they are distributed throughout China, uh, mainly the northern provinces um, and the central plain, as you can see from the map. Central plain being Zhongyuan um, region in, in Mandarin Chinese. So the Hui are one of 56 ethnic groups efficiently recognized by the People's Republic of China, right? Um, which I am referring to, will refer to simply as China um, throughout this presentation. So the PRC or Chinese government defines the Hui to include all historically Muslim communities not included in China's other ethnic groups. So these other ethnic groups, including um, Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, Tajik, etc. Right. In addition, of course, to the majority Han ethnicity. So this um, next slide here shows the distribution of the Dungans in Central Asia. As you can see from the map, the Dungans are Hui people who migrated from northwest China to northern Kyrgyzstan, um, Kazakhstan, and Uz eastern Uzbekistan following the suppression of the Dungan Revolt, which lasted from 1862 to 1877 um, under the Qing Dynasty. According to um, latest census data available as of 2020, there are an estimated 150,000 Dungans. And this is the figure that I have um, give in my book here. Um, the Dungans live primarily in uh, the following regions. So um, Kyrgyzstan, 
um, where there are uh, 73,977 Dunkins, according to the 2020 Kyrgyz census. Kazakhstan, where there are 72,361 Dunkins, according to the 2019 Kazakh census. Um, Uzbekistan, uh, where there are approximately 3,000 Dungans, according to 2009 estimates provided by the Dungan Cultural Center of Uzbekistan. And finally, there's a smaller but growing migration um, of Dungans from Central Asia to um, Saratov Oblast, or the Saratov region, um, which is located in the southeast of European Russia, not far from the northern border of Kazakhstan. And this migration began only in 2000 with um, 1,651 Dungans counted in the 2010 Russian census. This next slide provides a summary of the Dungan or Hui migrations from Northwest China to Central Asia. So basically there were three um, phases of, in terms of the migration. The first um, migration of the Dungans from Northwest China to Tsarist Russia occurred in the winter of 1877 to 1878 in the immediate aftermath of the failed Dungan Revolt, um, which lasted from 1862 to 1877 under the Manchu Qing Dynasty. The second migration took place during the years 1881 to 1884 in accordance with the terms of the Treaty of St. Petersburg, um, which was signed in 1881 um, between the Russian Empire and the Qing Dynasty and provided for the return to China of the Upper Ili Basin, which had been occupied by Russian troops since 1871 during the Dungan Revolt. Um, Muslims and other inhabitants of the region were given the option to either remain under the oppressive Manchu rule or move to the Russian Empire and most chose the latter. Um, approximately 10,000 Sino-Muslims settled during the two migrations in what is today Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, right? Uh, finally, there were later migrations in the first part of the 20th century until the border was closed in the early 1960s following the Great Chinese Famine, which lasted from 1959 to 1961. Now I would like to present some basic information about the Dungan language. So the slide you're looking at now shows a sample of what's called Xiao Er Jing or Xiao Jing sometimes, which was the Perso-Arabic script originally used by the Dungans. So, the top row in the image shows Chinese written characters. The second row shows the Arabic equivalents. And the third row shows this Xiao Er Jing, which was used um, to write um, Dungan, as I said, prior to, uh, during the Imperial Russian period. And this excerpt is taken from a Chinese Arabic Xiao Er Jing dictionary that was published in 1955 in Shanghai, right? So literally meaning ch children's script or minor script, Shao Arjing was primarily used, however, for annotating religious text prior to the Soviet period. So what happened next? So um, what you're looking at now is um, the two... Uh, Latin alphabets that were used to write Dungan between 1928 and 1953. Um, you can see at the bottom the 1928 Latin alphabet um, and then above it the 1932 um, version that replaced it. Okay. So the question is, right, why was there experimentation with these uh, different Latin alphabets to write Dungan? So during the years 1928 to 1929, 
as the Kyrgyzis, Kazakhs, and other Turkic-speaking peoples of the Soviet Union were adopting the Latinized alphabet known as the New Turkic Alphabet, or simply New Alphabet, the Duncans adopted a Latinized alphabet based on the New Turkic Alphabet, but adapted for languages of peoples of non-Turkic origin. By 1932, the new Latin Hua um, began to replace the first Latin alphabet. So the Latin Hua movement was spurred on by the fact that Muscovite political workers at the Scientific Research Institute on China, a unit of the Communist Academy, were joined by highly qualified linguists and sinologists from the Academy of Sciences in Leningrad. And this all, information all comes from Svetlana Rybsky-Korsakov-Dyer, who's also um, the source of uh, uh, most of the information that I provide about the migrations. So, so what you see here, what you see here is um, the Dungan Cyrillic alphabet that was adopted and in use until today for the Dungan language. So, from um, it consists of the thirty-three letters of the Russian alphabet and five additional letters to accommodate the sounds of Dungan speech. So from 1939 on, the Cyrillic alphabet gradually replaced the various Latin alphabets for all the national minority languages in the Soviet republics of Central Asia. The most important motivation for the switch was the desire of the Soviet government to facilitate making Russian a unified language of the USSR by having a single alphabet taught in elementary schools for Russian and the minority languages. With the change delayed, however, in some areas by the war and its aftermath, the implementation of a new Dungan alphabet based on the Russian script with the five additional letters did not occur until 1953. For some of the other minority peoples, it, it started occurring as early as the late 30s. Finally, um, I would like to make a few remarks about the modern Dungan language, and then we'll talk specifically about the Dungan folklore tradition. So Dungan is notably the only Sinitic language that is officially written using an alphabet, or in linguistics, what's called a morphophonemic system, instead of Chinese characters, which constitute a morphosyllabic system. So an internal diglossic situation this stems from the fact that Dungans are divided between the Gansu dialect, spoken mainly in Kyrgyzstan, and the Shanxi dialects, predominantly spoken in Kazakhstan, representing where the, the regions in northwest China where these um, Dungans originally came from, uh, Gansu and Shanxi. So uh, while nearly half of the young generation today has no mastery of Dungan and can only speak Russian and sometimes also Kyrgyz or Kazakh. Um, so the Dungan language is in fact listed by the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, as what's called a definitely endangered language. And so a language is definitely endangered if children no longer learn the language as mother tongue in the home. That is, the youngest speakers are of the parental generation. All right. So now I would like to introduce um, just briefly the um, I start to introduce the scholarly study of the Dungan uh, folk stories that I will be discussing. So the Dungan folk narrative has always occupied a prominent place in Dungan folklore. So um, 
So in terms of um, the study that I'm actually, that I write about um, in, in my book and which, um, on which this presentation is based, um, this particular study had three um, investigators, main investigators. The first being uh, Boris Livovich Riftin. So he, he lived from 1932 until 2012. And I was in um, contact with him um, from 2000 until he passed in um, 2012. And um, he was uh, worked at the Gorky Institute of World Literature of the Russian Academy of Sciences for more than 50 years until the time of his death. And he's, cons he's considered a pioneer in the study of Chinese popular um, literature, folklore, and visual culture. He was a doctor of sciences in philology and was known to many by his Chinese name, Li Fuqing, as he wrote many scholarly article works in Chinese in addition to his works in his native uh, Russian. And I know that he was extremely excited about the fact that I was um, making the translation of all of these folktales and his study. And, um, and I'm so glad to be able to honor him um, this year with the publication of the book. Um, the other two um, uh, researchers who worked with Rifton are, um, the first is Mahmoud Ahmedovich Hassanov, who lived from 1932 to 1977. He was a prominent um, ethnic Dungan scholar and prose writer. Um, having spent considerable time first in Kazakhstan and later in Kyrgyzstan, Hassanov achieved superior knowledge of both the Shanxi and the Gansu dialects of Dungan, which allowed him in a short time to establish himself as one of the leading authorities on the folklore of the Central Asian Dungans. So, and um, in addition to literary studies, Hassanov wrote short stories and novellas that had a substantial influence on the development of Dungan prose in the 1960s and the 1970s. And he was also um, a candidate of sciences in philology. So the, the Soviet and the Russian educational system is, is a, quite a bit different from the Western, and, but the candidate of sciences degree is roughly equivalent to a PhD. Um, okay, and finally, the third um, investigator on the study that I'll be talking about that's contained in the, the book is um, Ilyas Ismailovich Yusupov, who lived from 1930 to 2005. He was a um, well-known ethnic Dungan scholar who was engaged all his life in research into the history and culture um, of the Dungans. He was um, a um, candidate of sciences in um, history and published more than 100 scholarly works, including monographs, booklets, textbooks, and dictionaries during his lifetime. Okay. So now let me talk um, about the um, study itself, right, which was conducted by Rifton, Hassanov, and Yusupov. Um, so this is called Dungan Folk Tales and Legends, right? In Russian, Dunganskiya Narodnya Skazki Pridanya. And it's a collection of 78 stories translated into Russian by, as I said, Riftin, Hasanov, and Yusupov. And it was edited by, and with an introduction, an analysis um, by Riftin. Also, although um, Hasanov also helped with that um, introduction, he was the co-author on the introduction. It was published in 1977 by Nauka Publishers and is part of, this, of its series titled Tales and Myths of um, Eastern Peoples, right? Um, and got quite a bit of attention at the time when it was published in the Soviet Union because of being, its inclusion in that particular series. And that's the, the cover of the 1977 edition. Um, so there have been several other editions, not only in Russian, published since that time. Um, in addition to the original 1977 Russian edition, there was, there's been a more recent 2013 second edition of the, of the original Russian, uh, book. And then an, ab an abridged edition 
that came out uh, more recently in 2018 that only contain the folk stories that Rifted specifically translated and not his, um, the two um, colleagues of his. Very rather recently as well, 10 years ago, there was a Chinese edition that was also published. And I know that also Rifton was very excited about this. Um, and it actually was published before, right before he passed. Um, and um, it was published by the Shanghai Literature and Art Publishing House. And finally, my edition has just appeared this year, which I'm going to be talking about, the English language edition. Okay. So, so how are these um, particular uh, folk stories organized in the book? So they are organized, um, I organized them based on the way they were organized in the original edition, the Russian edition, which is according to the Arne Thompson classification um, of folk narratives, which is the traditional classification of uh, folk tale types. And therefore, I have three chapters of differing lengths um, devoted to the different, the different tale types. The first is wonder tales and animal tales, which is the largest grouping. Second is novelistic tales, folk anecdotes, and adventure stories, which is a somewhat the second largest grouping. And finally, I have a third grouping that's called legends, historical tales, and narratives. Narratives is a is a approximate translation from the Russian skaz. Right? So here you can see the first 20 selections of the wonder tales and animal tales, of which there are 40. Right? Um, the first tale, um, Jean Dajer shoots pheasants, is actually um, a revised translation of an earlier translation in English that I had published with a Sophism magazine in 2005. And it includes the very well-known character of the Dragon King, uh, well-known in Chinese um, folklore. Okay, and you see uh, shapeshifters here as well. Snake girl, spider, gene spirit, gene meaning spirit. Right. Uh, the next 20 tales here. Right. And again, you can see um, some of the, um, the sh more shapeshifters, the white rabbit girl, number 37. Right. Um, you also see some um, 27, Ishar. So that's like a non-Chinese name, right? Non-Far Eastern origin is uh, being the main character here. So this you see where you start to see the Central Asian influence. Um, finally, right, uh, next, I should say, the second um, grouping, Novelistic Tale, Folk Anecdotes, and Adventure Stories. Um, I'll just point out in um, uh, Selection 62 and 64, Yuan Wai, Yuan Wai. So you may recognize that if you speak Chinese, where this is um, originally, it, it's sort of like a lord in a sense, correct? In the, in the Western sense, there's no exact equivalent. But originally, it meant a supernumerary official and subsequently the head of a wealthy family who does not hold an official post. And this is, again, a common character um, in the Dungan tales. Finally here, um, the, the last grouping is legends, historical tales, and narratives. And again, if you know um, Chinese folklore, um, Chinese literature, Chinese history, you may recognize some of these names. I'll just point out, for example... Um, uh, 72, uh, Han Xin, right, who was a military general who died in 190, 100, 196 BC, who contributed greatly to the founding of the Han dynasty and is best remembered as a brilliant military leader for the tactics and strategies he employed in warfare. And then finally, 70, Seclection 74, um, here, uh, this is in Chinese, it'd be Xue, Xue Ren Gui, who lived from 614 to 683, and he was a prominent general during the early Tang dynasty. So a lot of these um, hark back to uh, Chinese history, Chinese mythology. Okay, so um, we'll talk now um, in, in the last like 10 minutes or so about some of the um, general features that have been identified of these Dungan folk narratives. So the first, um, is um, tale typology, right? So Dungan categorization of oral prose narratives um, is into really what's called a bujie in Mandarin Chinese, which are typical tales. 
and then what's a, a foe, which uh, which uh, but foe is in Dungan, which but the you could compare that with Beijing Shuo Shu or storytelling to music, which are therefore book book stories or those with a basis in the Chinese literary tradition. Basically, um, shorter and longer types of um, of tales here, right? But as I said, we're using here the um, the Arne Thompson classification for the tale. Next, I want to speak briefly about the origins of the tales themselves. So um, there are both Far Eastern and Near Eastern sources that I've, I've already pointed out as we're going through the table of contents there uh, for these tales. And, and it reflects the really fascinating and complex ethnogenetic and cultural ties of the Dungans, right? The other thing to note is that the, the down-to-earth nature of the fiction of the Dungan tale, um, especially a wonder tale, um, and it links it to the folklore of Far Eastern tales, right, which take place not in some distant and unknown realm, a land of fantasy, but rather all the uncommon occurrences happen with the hero nearby in places that are native and familiar to the storyteller. Um, third, I would like to um, talk about narrative time in the Dungan folk narratives. So there, there tends to be a, a general lack of localization in time in the Dungan stories. Um, the, um, next, the tales of a number of peoples of the Far East, for example, the Chinese and the Koreans, who are generally inclined toward legend or tradition, often specifically indicate the time of the action in a tale, right? For, um, for instance, during a particular dynasty or under a particular ruler, a particular story happens. In Dungan tales, wonder tales, and um, everyday tales alike, whose connection with legend is considerably weaker, these kinds of introductions localizing the action in time are hardly ever found. So the tale usually begins simply with words like, you know, there once was, or in the old days there was, something like that, right? Attributing the action to an indefinite past time. Um, fourth, I, I'd like to make a, um, a few comments about the physical landscape as it's found in the Dungan tale. So the wor world of the Dungan tale has its own specific landscape. So, for example, um, we, we often see the frightening and dangerous forest. And you can compare that to the frightful forest in European tales. We, we also see very mention of the plague or, or sometimes uh, very often it being inferred rather than specifically described in the tale. Also, um, we see mention of the, the sea, but uh, interesting enough, no lakes or rivers, right? So for example, um, the East China Sea where the Dragon King lives. And finally, cities, right? Cities are often um, mentioned in these tales or inferred, right? And it usually is an abstract, quaint Chinese city rather than a specifically named one. Fifth, I'd like to make um, uh, a few comments about common character types that are found in the Dungan folk narratives. So farmers, the, the types that we commonly find are farmers, shepherds, petty traders, woodcutters, hunters, keepers of coaching inns, bandits, officials, and sovereigns, right, to name a few. However, there is scant mention of craftsmen, of whom there were many before among the Dungans, but frequent mention of petty traders. So, for example, um, owners of small shops or those walking around the villages with a yoke and basket selling fabrics, decorations, or other trifles. Okay. Um, also, um, there is a prevalence of coaching inns, 
with their innkeepers and assorted guests as the place where the action in many tales occurs. Um, immortals are also um, frequently mentioned in these tales. So, uh, for example, the Shen Xian, as I mentioned earlier in the, when we're looking at the titles of the tales, and the Shen Xian is always a positive character. The holy Hezir, right, um, whose depiction is typical, um, is a character whose depiction is typical in Near Eastern and Central Asian folklore. So that's another type of immortal, but from um, a different tradition here. And finally, we also see a lot of fantastical characters, as you can imagine, in these Dungan tales. So um, monsters elementally linked with Far Eastern mythology. So, for example, as I mentioned earlier, the shape-shifting jinn, right, um, who seduce their victims. The shape-shifting uh, you guai, right, who um, forcefully abduct people. And the ye mao ren, I'm saying actually in the Mandarin um, Chinese pronunciation, um, uh, the hairy wild uh, man cannibal, right? But you can see the, 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 the similarities in the Dungan pronunciation based on the transcriptions from the... Um, the transliterations from the Duncan. We also have monsters common, however, in Central Asian folklore. So, for example, the Mangudzi, which is um, a seven-headed monster, and this can be compared with the Mongolian Mangus and the Gansu Mangor Mangudzi. And then we also have characters of the Near Eastern and Middle Eastern mythological sphere. For example, the giants Dai Wudzi is how I translate it whose name is derived from the Iranian Dev. Um, the Dragon King is another character that we see, and I already, already mentioned that, right? Uh, the uh, Lun Wan in, in Dungan, right? Uh, Long Wang in uh, Mandarin Chinese, the master of water, whose depiction emerged on Far Eastern soil, but under the influence of Indo-Buddhist mythological religious beliefs. And then we have characters linking Dungan folklore with the Turkic. So for example, Tutsi, which is a bald head or mangy person, which, you do, which we do not find in Chinese folklore tradition. And that can be compared uh, with the old Turkic Taz, Taz, which is a cunning trickster or lucky cheat. So, and then there are familial relations exemplifying the idea of filial piety and punishment for undutiful children. And this um, is been, has been mainstreamed um, under the influence of Confucianism in the Dungan Tales. So, um, uh, number six, I want to talk just briefly about the uh, individual motifs and plots. What are some of the features here? So um, the, you, you see a depiction of the societal relations of old China in a modified form. So, for example, heroes encountering officials or emperors who seem closer to the common people than they would um, be in the tales of the Chinese. There is also frequent reference to two kingdoms and two sovereigns, respectively possibly preserving memories of the periods of temporary fragmentation in China in the Middle Ages or memories of ancient tribal chiefs or clan leaders in the south of China. And this is according to Wolfram Eberhard. Um, uh, or the borrowing of plots from the folklore of, of neighboring non-Far Eastern peoples, presum presumably uh, mainly Turkic peoples. There's also the hero you, you see very often going straight to the capital and easily obtaining the title of Zhuang, Zhuang Yuan in, in um, Dungan, right? uh, uh, the number one scholar in what is depicted as a much less complex system of government examinations than in reality. So here we see a possible link between the popularity of the Zhuang Yuan in Dungan tales and the influence of Chinese ancient drama and the traditional auspicious popular print. We also, there's also an often positive and differential attitude toward the uh, Yuan Wai, 
with um, a typical character in the Dungan tale. And this can, can be compared to the Pameshik of the Russian tale, or the, the, the Lord in English, approximately, right? There's also the apparent, infrequent appearance of the Ahun, who is um, the a Muslim clergyman, right? You could compare that with, uh, the uh, can be compared with a Mola, whose depiction is never found in Chinese folklore or Far Eastern folklore generally. And then we have folklore characters of neighboring peoples readily entering the world of the Dungan tale. So for example, lamas, Buddhist monks, and Taoist monks who can all identify shapeshifters and fight them with the help of different spells and other magical means in the tales. Um, so two more points. Uh, the seventh is um, very uh, uh, about color symbolism. So, um, and then the last is about number symbolism. So uh, red and green are... Um, are bright colors that scare away evil spirits and protect from adversity in these Dungan tales. For example, so you will see red and green in the bride's attire um, and in the paint on the wagons and the horse harnesses before they're going, they're going off on their long, dangerous journeys. White is the color of mourning among the Dungans as it is among the Chinese. White is also associated with fantastical animals. So, uh, for example, a white snake, a white rabbit, a white horse. And, and these um, fantastical characters are animals typically help the hero in some way. Black is mainly applied to negative characters in the tale and negative phenomena. Um, for example, a black snake, a black world, a whirlwind, a black fool, um, which is considered um, an abusive form of address for the dragon king. Yellow is a color that pretends doom in the Dungan tale. So, for example, um, there's you will, there's mention of, for example, a yellow whirlwind carrying the heroine away, or a yellow countenance uh, of of a character indicating contact with a vampire shapeshifter. And then we also have blue and the closely related green as colors associated with dark forces. Um, for example a monster's blue or green face, green smoke accompanying the appearance of a monster, um, and or the soul of the hero's enemy ascending into the sky with a trickle of blue smoke. Okay, and, so, and then eighth and finally, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the number symbolism in the Dungan folk narrative. So three is an often mentioned number, and it's um, typical in the epic storytelling of various peoples. Seven is a number that's often mentioned in the Dungan Tales and is more peculiar to Far Eastern folklore. Seventy-two is another number that's often mentioned in the Dungan Tales. And then we have nine, the number nine and its derivatives, especially 99, often mentioned, for, um, for example, um, and uh, is 99 people, per, you know, being destroyed by an evil monk in a tale, um, 99 iron chariots thrown into a river by a hero warrior. Okay, and these all have nine as the base odd or um, in Chinese uh, numerology masculine number that form the basis for counting in ancient China. And then finally, 40 is a number that occupies a special place in Dungan folklore early entering it from the Near Eastern cultural tradition 
And you may recall the Near Eastern tale, Ali Baba and the 40 Thieves. And then the, the Dungan version of that tale, um, stories of 40 viziers. So, um, and then other examples using the um, number 40 in the Dungan tales, um, the hero performing for the Dragon King for 40 days and 40 nights or all kinds of events transpiring 40 days after a wedding or 40 days after um, death, the death of a hero's parents. Okay. So what are the conclusions, you know, of these, uh, of this, um, of study? So basically the study indicates that Dungan folk stories are firmly rooted in Chinese storytelling traditions, but that they also exhibit substantial Middle Eastern, East Asian, and Central Asian influence. Okay, so these are some of these are the references that I've used um, throughout this uh, PowerPoint presentation: Dyer, Eberhard, Loruel, and Peyrouz, uh, Mosley, and then um, Rifton, of course, uh, Roper, and then um, myself from my new publication, okay? Um, if you would like um, to, uh, further information about this um, pre, uh, topic or other topics that I'm working on related to the Dungans or just questions in general, please do not hesitate after the question and answer period to email me at kyin at legcc.cuny.edu um, or visit my, um, you can also visit my personal website which is um, kjy.georgetown.domains. Um, and again, thank you all so very much for um, coming to the presentation. And I look forward to hearing any questions or comments you may have if you're able to stay. Before we take questions from the audience, uh, I have a few. Um, when did you actually get started with this particular project and how long did it take to actually become a publication? Great question. Um, so I made initial contact with Boris Rifton through email um, in 2005. And, um, and the reason for that originally was because I had already translated, and I think I mentioned the opening um, tale in this collection, um, John Dodger uh, Shoots Pheasants, with, under a, a, another title. And I was actually trying to get um, his permission to publish that in Usopus magazine. But as I, I as soon as when I started to communicate with him, um, I, I, we started talking and I realized how excited he was about my just publishing one tale and how he was so willing to help and would like to see his, all his entire collection published in English. And I was also very intrigued by the tales. I had started reading, of course, even translating in a way some of the other ones and decided that I would think about that project at the time. I hadn't committed to it per se. So it took some time. Um, you know, I, I, I worked on it like the other, it was actually published that one tale at the end of, in fall of 2005. But I thought about the other you know, a, a bigger project for quite some years. And I, and was, it was, uh, I thought about it on and off, but one of my CUNY fellowship leave, which was in 2012, 2013, which I also mentioned in the uh, front of the book that was just published, gave me the time that I needed to tr uh, finish translating really the bulk and annotating the bulk of this book. And therefore, but then it still took some work after that to really, you know, write the proposals, find a publisher and everything. And it did, and it finally came together when I found the publisher last year, 2020, and the book has come out. But you're right, I guess, you know, a six, 16 year journey, but but just extremely, I, I, I just, I, I just, I really loved every moment that I've worked on it. And I really see it as a tribute to, um, to Rifton, who who who, risked, who passed in 2012, and to all of his colleagues, and really to the Dungan people. Uh, did yeah, you I, I feel so honored to to be able to put this out, actually, the book. I mean, yeah. But thank but, you so much for that. Now, did you find any particular difficulties in the translation from one language? Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> I think any any translator or, or researcher would lie if they say there were some difficulties in you know the work and. Translation is a is a um, is a funny occupation in some ways, 
because um, yeah, a lot of it is based on the scholars. You have to have the knowledge and the context for what you're actually translating. But there is a good part of it that's also sort of um, creative in a sense too, right? No two people would ever translate the same text, right? Or even the same paragraph or even the same line perhaps in the same way, right? So uh, I see it as a challenge rather than like an issue or perhaps a problem. I like to call it a, 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 a challenge. It's a challenging sort of thing to do. Um, and, um, you know, I, every time I would look at my, the drafts of the translations or the annotations that I made, there's always a, an, another way you could, you could say it or word it again, right? Um, but at a certain point, you sort of leave it alone because you realize if I go back to my drafts, it's like, oh, I already, I already wrote it that way. It's like, oh, I, I have to, you know, you, you leave it alone at a certain point. And you sort of let it, let it sort of go. And it, yeah, and it, it's sort of fine. But um, it, I, I, as, as a sort of short answer, but yeah. But I, I've also had so much um, support from um, Dungan's, different Dungan scholars, um, other sinologists um, in both, both in Russia and also in the U.S. And also just my, my colleagues at, at CUNY and specifically at LaGuardia that it's, it's really been such a, um, a, a, a really um, enjoyable journey for me for 16 years. We have two questions from our attendee, Jack Gatzner. Uh, he asks, was the Chinese edition a translation from Dungan or from the Russian translation? And he follows up with, how is Dungan considered diglossic? Yeah, so the answer to the first question, yeah, the Chinese edition had rifted who was the 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 agenda, the main editor of the original Russian edition, working on it, um, and it was, but it was transliterated, transcribed, if you will, by a Chinese native speaker who knew the Zhongyuan or Central Plains Chinese, which is the Chinese that was the basis for the Dungan. You see. But you're, and they looked at the original, that they, the, that, that transcriber translator looked primarily at the original Dungan language manuscripts and typescripts that were extant at the time and could, were provided therefore by Rifted, right? Um, but it, but not all of them were available. So the person did have to also look at the Russian translations, you see. But even with the extant Dungan language manuscripts, there were some, there were some true difficulties in trying to figure out what really it would mean in Chinese instead, right? So because of, you know, the separation of 140 years and, you know, how the Dungan language, the language has changed, right? Different from the Northwest top elect of Mandarin. So because of all of that, I mean, um, yeah, it's it's often called like translation, like within quotes sometimes, like transcription, translation, if you will. And it's not written in standard Mandarin either. The person tried to write it in like the Mandarin reflecting the top elect that's spoken in Northwest China, which however would therefore be closer presumably to the original Dungan that's in those manuscripts, you see. So Dungan is a diglossic, so diglossia, you know, a fancy linguistic term, basically it sort of means bilingualism, but at a societal level, right? When we say somebody's bilingual, we're usually talking about an individual. But if you're talking about diglossia, you're talking about in a society that different segments will be speaking, right? For the Dungans, more than one dialect of Dungan. So the two major dialects of Dungan are Gansu and Shanxi dialects. The Gansu being the dialect spoken predominantly by the Kyrgyz, uh, the Dungans in Kyrgyzstan, because they basically came from the Gansu province in Northwest China, whereas the Dungans in Kazakhstan speak uh, what's call, uh, called the Shanxi dialect, because they predominantly came from the Shanxi province in China. So there are some differences if they, if you were to hear, you knew, you knew one of the forms of Duncan between the Shanxi Duncan and the, um, 
the Gansu Dangan. But Gansu Dangan, which is spoken in Kyrgyzstan, is considered the standard. So the few dictionaries that are out, for example, they will usually go by Gansu Dangan. Uh, if you would like to ask Professor Yen a question, you could raise your hand and we could uh, allow you to. Oh, we have one. <laughs> Jack has a follow-up. But uh, let me see. Uh, so folks, if you would like to ask a question, do the raise hand function and we'll allow you to talk. So we'll allow uh, Jack. Um, just a quick question, I, in, in terms of the translation, did you start with a very close translation, and as you worked on it, it became looser and looser? Uh, you understand what I mean by the close? Yeah, and absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, every translator has his or her own sort of way of doing it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I tried to strike a balance between something that was like a very close and like more literal type translation and something that was more freer, but that would that would really reflect all of the, the the content, if you will, in the original. That that would that would not like um, sound foreign or translated to like an English ear. So I guess yeah, for me, when I, through all of the retranslations of the text, it somewhat became maybe a little freer. And I think for myself, as with a lot of, I think, academic translators, the tendency is the first time or times around, you want it almost like reflect as much as you can that's in the original. But then when you, when you, when you leave, it, uh, leave it alone for a while and come back and just look at the English, you realize, wow, some of that is like redundant or it just doesn't seem fluent to have all of those details in there. So, so I, I ended up taking some of those out. So, so the um, the object in the end is to make it sound like English, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think but, that's the goal but, of any but to some, Yeah, but to yeah. somehow maintain the flavor of of uh, Russian or Dungan, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's that added sort of consideration as an academic, as a translator of an academic text, we also don't want to be leaving out um, a lot of the content, if you will. That is contained mm -hmm. in those original texts. I think it's a little bit different if you're like translating like a general reference type of novel, let's say or a short story, right? But right. Since academic texts, I want you know, um, with those academic parts, I, I I was more careful to really I wanted to have those um those sort of details sort of in there, but try to weave it in there in a in a way where it wouldn't sound um sort of redundant, you know, repetitive or just sort of like foreign uh, right. to okay. ear. So Thanks it's, a a lot. it's a balancing act, I guess, ultimately. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Thanks very much. You're very welcome, Jack. Hey, Jane Selden, you're up next. I was curious about how you were able to identify the features of these folktales and le legends that were specifically Dungan or derived from Middle Eastern and uh, Central Asian traditions rather than from the Chinese storytelling tradition, did you spend a lot of time oh, comparing yeah. a story, like a folktale, a Chinese folktale, and then the Dungan version of it? Did you do a lot of that kind of comparison to be able to sort of distill the features that were particularly Dungan? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah, so in in my in in the book that that was published, right? In addition to the actual seventy eight folk stories. I also translated and annotated the um, um, 40-some page introduction from the original edition, which is called um, The Fictional World of the Dungan Tale. Uh -huh. And in that, um, Rifton and, and Hasanov um, have, have um, done considerable research as, um, into the other influences, if you will, on the Dungan Tale, and they're actually contained in there. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. correct. So I, yeah, so that's where that basic, a lot of that basic, um, it, it comes from for my actual presentation. Yeah, I'm sorry if that wasn't clear. Yeah. Oh, no, no, thanks. It's clear now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I was able to, you know, verify that from my own knowledge, of course, also of all of the, the Chinese and the. Sure. Yeah. Our Eastern tradition. Yeah. And there, of course, there are a lot more references if you're interested in more of that, like the, where these, um, non-Chinese influence are from 
I only had a few of the references, of course, because I didn't mention a lot that's in there. But if you actually get a chance to read the introduction, you, you'll see so many other references that may be of interest to you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. Thank you. Yeah, a great question, Jane. Thank you so much. I'll ask another question. Uh, which which of these 70 plus tales is your favorite? Oh, wow. Um, I loved every, very honestly, I loved working and translating every single one of them. I have to really be honest. I mean, they range in uh, length from just like one, like half a page in English translation to, I think the over 40 pages, maybe 50 pages for one, like the, the legends and historical tales and na narratives tend to be longer. I, yeah, I, I really enjoy them all. They're all sort of um, distinct in their own way. They, they're all so fascinating. And I learned, uh, you, you'll just learn so much about the Dungans and also about their folklore tradition from all of them. It, it's, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I couldn't at this point just pick like one of them or two of them or something like that. I mean, as I said, though, I did originally already translate the opening sort of tale um, for back in 2005. But that that that, ha that was way back when I sort of started reading from the beginning as well. So that was one of the ones that I had one of the few that I had translated at the time. So that's so um, so that's. Um, yeah, that's how that happened. But but really. Um, um, yeah, that, that one, I have to think, I, I, I really, it's really all of them. I, I really enjoy them all. And, um, and there's just, um, I think anybody who picks up the book, any of the tales that you can read that you, they would just be just, they're just so colorful and lively. Right. Um, when I was translating them, when I was re after I read them, I, I just, I had to just go and write and translate them. I want other people to hear about it. And I couldn't even like sometimes stop myself from doing the translations until they were sort of done. Literally, I wanted to just stay at my computer. It's, you know, that's really honestly how I felt about the entire um, project. Yeah. Uh, one of our attendees, Ruru, asked, maybe you could read a short tale for us. Maybe maybe like a little sentence, a like paragraph out of it. But before oh. you do so, I just wanted to ask, in terms of the tales, did they have some sort of, did it follow some sort of formula or is sort of just regular you know paragraphs sentences and stuff it's it's not like sort of like the odyssey or iliad right some ballad poem or something like that you know followed like you know some sort of styling oh yeah not really because they again they were recorded in the field uh mainly between i think in the 50s and 60s by the three individuals that i mentioned rifton hasanov and yusupov and so that what they did was they wrote them or typed them out in in, they well, they recorded them like uh, the audio, and then they transcribed them, and then they themselves, among themselves, translated them all into Russian. So they did, and none of them, from what I understand, really did much more than perhaps for a longer story, like maybe break it into parts. Although that even doesn't really happen, happen very often. For example, I think even the forty-page tale it just goes to forty pages. Oh, wow. Yeah, they didn't really, uh, really like make sections out of it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, really. So, um, so maybe you could just read a little snippet uh, of. Yeah, or, or I'm thinking maybe just read one of the shorter sure. tales so you get the whole. Would you like that? Or perhaps some of them are just really short. Um, so I'm thinking now I have one in mind, um, which is also sort of humorous. And um, I'm looking through my own paper copy, <laughs> which is interesting. Not looking at the computer anymore for all these years. And it's called. Um, how a fool tried to catch flies. How about that? It's just one, one um, sentence. So this is one of the ones that's bracketed the title because it means it was so short that the person didn't even actually give it a title in the manuscript. But, but it, you know, it, how a fool tried to catch flies is what the, the translator called it, right? Okay, it says, it is said that a certain man hated flies. One summer, there was an unusually large number of flies. He grabbed a fishing net and ran to his home to try to catch the flies. He could not catch any flies, got angry, and burned the net. Then he told his wife to weave a new one. His wife said, I don't know how to weave a net. He gave his wife a whipping ran to the bazaar, and bought another net. 
But even with this net, he could not catch the flies. That was when he burned it. As he was burning it, he set fire to the house, saying, there are too many flies in this house. <laughs> so that's one of the really short, I think that's like one of the shortest ones. And it's very humorous, right? Yeah. Jane, if you would, if you want to unmute, you can ask Professor Young yeah. another question. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, Ken, I was wondering if there were tales that reflect, that had the theme of forced exile because um, the, the Duncans had to, you know, they were forced out of um, China. I think it was, you said, in the 19th century following um, a rebellion. Right, yeah. 1877, yeah. 1878. Yeah. yeah, but did these tales, I guess, did they predate that? Or are there any tales that that talk about exile and forced exile? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, none of the tales in the first two sections talk about them because they're like wonder, right? Um, the, the wonder tales and the animal tales, right? They're uh -huh. sort of removed sort of from historical types of events. Right. Right. Um, the second group in novelistic tales, folk animals, and adventure stories, again, they're not really historically based per se. Like the one I just read comes from that second um, grouping. I'm thinking about the legends, historical tales, and narratives. But again, these tend to be about um, long ago times. Right, right. That's and right. Not, yeah. yeah, not specifically, you know, like the 19th century and imperial, you know, um, Qing Dynasty, imperial Russian times. So yeah, that would be too close. I mean, I think for and in terms of the the settings for these particular tales or what's considered folk tales in the collection here. Yeah, my other question was, I think you said that in the sixties or seventies there was um prose written in Dungan. Did, did am I correct in that? Yes, absolutely. And that's actually connected to um a project. Uh, another book project that I'm actually working on now. Um, and um, it features um, I believe Hasana, who is considered one of the leading Soviet Dungan prose writers. And he was sort of the, 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 um, the second um, um, uh, most important um, researcher on this particular study and on this book. Yes, he was, so he wasn't just a researcher, but he was actually a creative writer. Um, which I think is always amazing. And, and so, I mean, so my project, that project is actually funded by the ACLS, American um, Council of Learned Societies. And I, I started working on that during the summer. And that's um, my, another book project that I had planned about, it's specifically about um, the emergence and development of Soviet Dungan literature. Oh, oh. And he's one of the people that's featured, of course, in that. But you're well, saying basically the current generation no longer speaks Dungan or reads it or, or why current meaning like today so right yeah. you know um yeah. like 21st century right and particularly there's no, since there's, the no movement, Union. there's no movement to bring it back the way there is in other countries you know to, to bring yeah I mean a lot of the support unfortunately for these minority languages of the uh, former Soviet Union lost a lot of their support once the Soviet Union collapsed in right. 91. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's sort of like a, a, a really interesting question, but that's a, a, that, that's sort of the fact. And, and the Dungans are not, have not been exempt from that. Once the government funding left, was, you know, uh, 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 was taken away for the um, maintenance of the languages, teaching of the languages, cultural preservation that the Soviets um, actually had funded, mm -hmm. right? For all the people there have struggled, the ethnic minorities, to be able to preserve their um, cultural mem memory, if you will, their, and then their language, including their languages and such. It's, it's not actually just unique to the Dungans. Why, but do, you trying, feel, why, do, you know, why do you feel the Russians wanted to preserve these traditions? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it goes way back to the 1920s, right? 1921, when the Soviet Union was, was founded. Mm -hmm. 
And this idea that, you know, the Soviet Union was this big um, um, sort of um, family, in a sense, right, with the, you know, with Moscow at the center, but that everybody would live together and live in harmony. And that would, they would, that all the different peoples of which there were so many, right, would all be celebrated. Right. However, it was, right, it was part of the propaganda, if you will. Huh. Right. Um, but of course, as, but of course, the reality, as we know very well, right, from the Soviet history was quite different, it, uh, could, you know, in terms of what kind of support was actually offered. Right, right. Right. And of course, the, we, we, won't, we, won't, we won't even get into the repression, Stalin's repressions and deprecations and all of that other sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But it, it came from that sort of original founding ideal, if you will, of, of Lenin and the Soviet Union as this sort of, um, you know, uh, of all the peoples of this, the Soviet peoples living in harmony. So, you know, at, at, at least at a minimum, they had to, to um, make it. Uh, to to talk about or offer some sort of support for maintaining language centers within local universities and and things like that and offer the possibility for learning your native or minority language wherever you are living you see alongside learning russian right 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 but yeah but that's an absolutely fascinating question and i i'm going to touch on that much more of course with my my uh for um uh, current project with the Soviet Dungan history, I mean, Soviet Dungan literary history. Before we conclude, I just want to thank uh, Professor Yan again for a wonderful presentation. Uh, to purchase a, a copy of his book, uh, once again, uh, Dungan Folktales and Legends, please visit the Peter Lang uh, publishing website or via the link on our Institute's uh, lecture page for, first, for Professor Yin. Uh, it's a hard copy is only available right now, right? Uh, or um, electronic. PDF, oh, the Moby ebook, yeah. Uh, enjoy your weekend, everybody. Uh, remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need. And good night. Thank you very much, Professor Yin. Thank you all. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>